I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to a text we considered a couple weeks ago, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 24, and uh, we're going to continue looking at the latter part of that verse. as we consider the subject of hell. We considered a couple weeks ago the subject of heaven, and now let us consider the matter, the sobering matter of hell. Proverbs 15, verse 24 says, The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. It's not uncommon to find people who affirm a belief in a place of everlasting joy called heaven. But in those same people who are willing to affirm a belief in heaven, who at the same time deny such a place of everlasting punishment called hell. How often in the course of a week do we hear the word hell used to punctuate sentences which in effect trivializes the seriousness and the terror that ought to be associated with that awful place. For that which we profane with our speech we do not take seriously. Jokes about heaven and about hell are even told by professing Christians further demeaning its grave and serious significance. One might as well make fun of house fires which destroy thousands of lives each year as to make fun of hellfire which shall torment millions of people forever and ever. Dear ones, the same God that revealed an eternal reward in heaven for all those who receive saving grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ also revealed an eternal punishment in hell for all those who remain in sin and guilt through their own self-righteousness and rebellion against the Lord, and the invitation, the offers of His grace and mercy. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, the Lord Jesus describes for us that final day of judgment. But notice the final verse in that chapter. Matthew 25, verse 46, where the Lord clearly distinguishes between the wicked who are sent to everlasting punishment in hell and the righteous who inherit eternal life in heaven. You see, dear ones, the doctrines of hell and heaven the doctrines of heaven and hell stand together 
and fall together. They both proceed from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we find more about the doctrine of hell from the very words of Christ in the Gospels than from any other portion of the Bible. One cannot, in all consistency, embrace Christ by faith alone and receive what he declares concerning the glories of heaven without also receiving what he declares concerning the everlasting torments of hell. Dear ones, if we would desire with all of our hearts to escape the temporal flames of a house that's on fire, how much more we should desire with all that is within us to escape the eternal flames of a lake of fire. Those who can tune out the Lord and his minister who preaches when he speaks of the torments of hell are indeed calloused and unbelieving indeed. I ask you today, what do you believe concerning hell? Have you given little or no thought to this essential teaching of Jesus Christ? Does the doctrine of hell motivate you to greater holiness, greater faithfulness, and greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you live your life as if hell did not really exist at all? Hell is not only a profitable teaching for the unbelieving sinner to hear, but is also profitable for the child of God to hear as well. This Lord's Day, let us consider the following two questions that arise from our text in Proverbs 15.24. First of all, why are we to depart from hell? And second, who are those who will suffer in hell? The first question, why are we to depart from hell? Solomon encourages the wise man, the wise woman, the wise child with these words, the way of life is above to the wise. Notice now, that he may depart from hell beneath. The word translated hell is the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol is also translated in many verses as grave. It's merely the grave where the body goes in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, if you're taking notes, you might want to consider Psalm 141, verse 7. It would appear, however, that in our text that we are considering now in Proverbs 15.24, Solomon is contrasting heaven above with hell beneath. Heaven being where the righteous go and hell being where the wicked go. And not simply the grave to which both the righteous and the wicked go. It should be observed 
that hell is not a doctrine unique to Christ and the apostles in the Old Testament. It is also taught in the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 9:17. Just look at that for a moment. Psalm 9, verse 17, where we read, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The Lord Jesus tells us that hell was in fact originally prepared for the devil and his angels that fell with him in Matthew 25, verse 41. However, when man swallowed the lie of the devil that to sin against God would make him like God, man reaped the same condemnation of everlasting fire in hell as the devil. Man who has chosen to follow the will of the devil upon earth shall live in communion with the devil, the epitome of all evil and everlasting torment, without even a minute's break from the agony of just judgment. Dear ones, those with whom we choose to spend all of our time in familiar fellowship here upon the earth, whether it be the wicked or whether it be the righteous, I'm not saying those whom we must work with, but those whom we voluntarily want to be around and choose to be around are those with whom we will spend all eternity whether in hell or in heaven. For those whom we want to be like and want to be with in this life declare our own heart's desire. They say something about us, who we want to spend time with. Who do you want to think like, speak like, and act like? Movie stars, rock stars, sports stars, the rich, the powerful, and the famous. As they walk that broad path that leads to everlasting destruction. Or the godly, the faithful, covenanted witnesses of Christ and even the persecuted martyrs who are thought so little of by this world. Martyrs of the Lord Jesus, as they walk that narrow path that leads to everlasting life. What is it, dear ones, that most delight your heart about which to talk? The latest movie, the newest song, the most recent fashion, the money you have made, the promotion at work, the improvements you have made on your house, the success of your children, or the degree you have achieved? Or do you delight most in talking about the God of your salvation, His holiness, His mercy, His faithfulness, His promises, and His commandments? Dear ones, where our treasure is, 
there will our heart be also. And if our heart is with the ungodly, our eternal home will be with the ungodly, with the devil and hell for all eternity. But now we must ask, why should we want to depart from hell? Well, let me give you several reasons. First of all, because hell's punishment is everlasting. Listen to the language God has chosen to employ in describing the duration, the length of hell's punishment. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Matthew 18.8 And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Matthew 25.46 It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Mark 9.43 The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Revelation 14.11 and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. Are these declarations of the Lord exaggerations? No. Are they merely intended for an effect, to cause an effect in our hearts? They're not intended for mere effect. Is the punishment of hell temporary? Certainly not. Can it ever be relaxed? Or can one ever escape from it for even a moment? A brief moment? Absolutely not. Just as the Greek word for everlasting and eternal, the Greek word is ionion, is used for the duration of, of the punishment in hell in Matthew 25:46 so likewise the exact same word ionion in the same verse is used for the duration of life in heaven and these shall go away into everlasting ionion punishment but the righteous into life eternal ionion Thus, if the pleasures of heaven never end, then the torments of hell never end. Ion in Greek means age and denotes duration within that age. Of itself, Ion does not determine the length of the age in view for their are two ions that are known in Scripture. The present age upon the earth 
and the future age after death. Both are called Ion. For example, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, you'll find Ion referring to both this age, this world. It's actually in the... uh, in our version of the Bible, the word age is translated world, but it is the word age. Another, another uh, word in English that uh, may translate this word, I own. Ephesians 1.21. We read of Christ, who seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21 says, Far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, or not only in this age, that is Ion, but also in that which is to come, that is, in that age, in that Ion which is to come. If anything belongs to this present world or age, the Greek word ion, it is limited in its duration or its temporal because this age comes to an end. If anything belongs to the future world or age, ion, it is unlimited in its duration It's eternal because that future age is eternal. Thus, if punishment of the wicked occurs in this present age, it is temporal. That punishment will come to an end in this age. But if the punishment of the wicked occurs in the future age, it is eternal and will never come to an end because that future age never ends. Thus, those who object to the eternal nature of punishment in hell because the word eternal belongs to an age must prove from the scripture that there is no endless age ever mentioned in the Bible to make their argument good. But as we have already shown from Matthew 5, I'm sorry, 25, verse 46. There is an endless age in heaven just as there is an endless age in hell. The sin committed in this present world, dear ones, is not committed against the justice of a mere temporal earthly king, but is committed against the justice of an eternal heavenly king. Whereas crimes committed against mortal kings cannot be punished beyond the grave, crimes committed against the immortal king of kings can and will be punished beyond the grave, and that punishment will never cease. In other words, the duration of punishment directly corresponds to the king against whom the crime is committed and how long he reigns as king. Consider Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where in the context of persecution, we note Jesus saying, 
and fear not them which kill the body. There are some kings, some magistrates who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a king who is able not only to kill the body, but the soul in hell. Since God is eternal, his justice is eternal, and he rules forever and ever, and unforgiven sins will be forever punished. Even punishment for an entire lifetime in prison will come to an end. Someone gets a life sentence and never gets out of prison. Well, that will come to an end, that temporal punishment. There is at least a real hope for any who waste away in prison. But here is a sentence, dear ones, of which I speak that will never, ever come to an end. When Peter was in jail, you remember he had a temporal chains fastened to his hands in Acts 11, for they fell off. And sooner or later, the chains will be removed from all who are in prison in this present world. But the chains of hell, dear ones, are described as, quote, everlasting chains in Jude verse 6. And they will never be removed. Not even for a brief moment. Never removed. There is not a moment of rest or peace from the just, righteous, and holy punishment of the eternal judge. And that is sobering. If that doesn't cause us to be sober about the things of God, then nothing will. Why should we want to depart from hell beneath? Not only because the punishment is everlasting, because, secondly, hell's punishment is not only physical torment, but mental torment as well. Hell is described with the most painful picture imaginable eternal flames of fire that continue to burn but never consume those who are cast therein. There is no doubt why so many of the martyrs of Christ suffered death by flames at the stake. Their persecutors spared no degree of pain in unjustly tormenting the faithful in times past. Most of us would think of, I'd rather die by any other means than to be burned to death. At least that is the thought of many. We certainly see in the present age how that which is physically painful also torments the mind of man as well. There's a connection between the body and the soul in some way. Though they are two different substances, God is so joined body and soul that what affects the body does affect the mind. And what affects the mind many times does affect the body. 
You women who have had the extreme pain in labor and childbirth can no doubt attest to the relationship between the body and the mind. I well remember the kidney stone attack that I had a few years ago and how the pain in the body affected the sanity of the mind. felt like literally I was going nuts. I was going crazy from the pain, the physical pain. And yet at the same time, when I received a a sufficient dose of pain medication and the pain subsided, at least the effects of it, I couldn't feel the, the pain any longer, how there was almost instantaneous tranquility of mind as well that followed. Dear ones, this sermon is is very difficult to preach. But these things must be said not only about the glories of heaven but about the terrors of hell in order to be faithful. Can you imagine suffering the greatest intensity of pain that may be experienced here upon the earth forever? without relief, without a break. The terrors of hell are indeed unimaginable. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 through 11, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. We may even be tempted in our ignorance and corrupt sense of justice to question the justice of God as we consider the torments of hell. Some may question, isn't God love? Where is his love manifested in such a punishment? Yes, God is indeed love, and he demonstrates a love of benevolence by leaving all men with a revelation of himself. 
whether in nature or in the gospel, God has revealed himself to all men. But man, due to the corruption and rebellion of his own heart, refuses the revelation of God and reaps the judgment of a holy God. God's love of benevolence is manifested to even the reprobate who will never come to Christ in that they are sincerely invited to come to Christ. However, the electing, redeeming, and sanctifying love of God is manifested only in the lives of those who are his adopted children through faith alone in Jesus Christ. God is not a father to save the damned in hell. He is their judge. And as their judge, he must judge righteously and without partiality. He must repay the unforgiven sinner as his sin truly deserves. Otherwise, he would not be God. He would be just like you and me, corrupt men and women. Dear ones, God's perfect justice demands, requires that the guilt of sin be paid. Either the sinner must pay that guilt of sin or it must be paid vicariously by another. Here is the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. God has sent his only begotten son to suffer his infinite wrath and to pay the debt of sin, the debt of sin's guilt which man owes to an infinitely holy and eternal God. The reason that the punishment in hell never ends is because the debt of sin that man owes to God never ends. It's an infinite debt that he owes to God and he continues to suffer forever and ever, never paying off the debt which he owes to God. But Jesus Christ, being the eternal Son of God, became a man that he might suffer that debt of guilt for man. And his bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day is God's proof that the debt has been paid in full for all those who will embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone. Dear ones, remember the punishment of hell. The punishment of hell is not remedial. It is not intended to reform sinners who are cast therein. It is retributive. That is, it is intended to repay the sinner as his sins justly deserve. Third question, why should we want to depart from hell? Same question, but a different response. Because there is no divine restraint in hell of man's wicked passions. In other words, there is no longer grace in any sense in hell, neither common grace to man, 
nor special grace to any particular man in hell. Another reason, then, why hell is everlasting is because man's hatred for God and his rebellion against God will be forever manifested in his passions there in hell. He will continue for all eternity to curse God, but will never be able to die. If holiness issues in true happiness, as we noted with regard to the sermon on heaven, wickedness issues in true misery, as we see is the lot of those who suffer in hell. Let us remember, wickedness and breaking the law of God, sinning against God, does not issue forth in joy, even here upon the earth. It issues forth in misery. And the picture of that misery ultimately, which, it, which wickedness issues forth in, is hell. If men will curse and hate God for the plagues he sends upon the earth, as we see in Revelation 16, verses 9-11, through 11, how much more will man curse and hate God when all divine restraint is forever removed? They're in hell. Every man in hell will become like the devil. <clears throat> Just as the righteous in heaven will become like the Lord Jesus Christ, so the damned in hell will become like their captain. How we ought to thank the Lord that he presently restrains by his grace and by his power the sinful passions of the wicked who are all around us, those with whom we work, those who are our neighbors. He is restraining their passions right now so that they are not as wicked and as evil as they could be. But when they are in hell, the restraint will be removed. They will be as wicked and evil as they can be. That is what makes hell absolutely unique and different from this present age. Fourthly, why should, why should we want to depart from hell? Because there is no hope in hell. Think of being in a totally helpless, hopeless situation. No hope at all. No hope. All hope is removed. And perhaps that's the most fearful thing about hell. Even more so than the suffering is that there is no hope. Absolutely none. Hell is eternal. Hell is torment and there is no hope of ever escaping. Hopelessness even here on earth can drive man to despair of life and sinfully commit suicide. In hell, however, however there are no suicides. There's no way to escape. There is no rest. The hopelessness of fear and the fear of hopelessness is ever present with the damned in hell. In hell there is only the darkness of the full realization of utter, total, complete hopelessness. There is absolutely no way to remove oneself from its everlasting chains. Fifthly, why should we want to depart from hell? Because there is... 
the eternal gnawing upon the conscience of the wicked as they behold the Son of God and those whom he has redeemed. You remember the story told about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And we read in verse 23 concerning the rich man, and in hell he lift up his eyes, behold, I'm sorry, in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. How, again, this occurs, whether there is actually sight into the rejoicing and the glories of those who are in heaven, or whether by way of some revelation, I don't know. But can you imagine being in hell where there is total hopelessness and in total torment and pain and seeing the rejoicing that's going on in heaven to add to the torment that is in hell? The wicked will not be able to find any rest from the condemning conscience which will forever ring from God's just judgment. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And equally condemning to the conscience of the wicked will be the words of Christ to those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Dear ones, this is what makes hell hell. All of these things just mentioned. This is why the wise man departs from hell beneath that he may walk the narrow path that leads to everlasting life in heaven above. Only one who believes Jesus is a liar or believes he is not the Son of God would be so foolish as to disregard and ignore his words about hell. The second main point. Who are those who will suffer in hell? Simply, all those who rebel against God and all those who remain in the guilt of their own sin, not coming to Jesus Christ, not seeking his forgiveness, who lay under the guilt and the penalty of their own sin. As we said earlier, sin has to be paid. The debt of sin must be paid. Either the person himself or herself will pay it for all eternity or it will be paid by a substitute and the only substitute qualified to bear our punishment that we deserve is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the fear of going to hell a proper motive for obedience in the life of the child of God who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for his eternal salvation? Important question. Although as Christians we do not walk in the liberty which Christ has purchased for us to the degree that we ought to walk therein, nevertheless, fear 
of the all-consuming wrath and vengeance of God as a holy judge has been removed from the child of God. One of the things, one of the uh, sections, if you look at the, the chapter dealing with liberty of conscience and the confession of faith, one of the things specifically that we have been delivered from is from the fear of God's condemnation, the fear of God's all-consuming wrath in hell. Likewise, we read in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Likewise, in 1 John 4, verse 18, we read, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Dear ones, God is no longer our angry judge if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. But rather, God is now our loving Father who disciplines us out of love for our good that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a fatherly fear of God now, but not a slavish fear of God as an avenging judge. God needs no longer to repay us as our sins justly deserve because Jesus Christ has already paid the, the debt of guilt in full which our sins justly deserve. And to punish us on top of Christ being punished for those sins would be to require payment twice. Payment is only required once by either the person who sinned or by a substitute, but not by both. Therefore, the child of God who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for his eternal salvation need never fear hell. For hell is for those whose debt of sin forever remains, not for those whose debt of sin is forever cleared and paid in full. Well, how then may the child of God benefit and profit from a study of hell? If the fear, if his actual fear of going to hell is not a proper motivation, then how may he profit? One who is trusting in Christ for his salvation. How may he profit? Well, let me give you some suggestions. First, hell explodes the vanity and pride of man in showing so clearly to us all what our sins justly deserve from a holy God. For hell reveals, there was the infinite justice of a holy God. It is true that there are many things in life that are not justly administered by man. We may complain time and again how fair or unfair this person is or that 
situation is. Let us never forget that if God were entirely fair or just with us, we would ourselves spend all eternity in hell for our own sins. Secondly, hell reveals not only the justice of God, but on the other hand, the free mercy and grace of God in rescuing sinners like you and me from the very place we deserve to be. A serious contemplation of hell should have the effect of producing endless praise and thanksgiving to the God of all mercy who freely sent His only begotten Son to be our Savior and to satisfy His divine justice, which we deserved. Dear ones, if you are trusting alone in the Lord Jesus Christ today for your eternal salvation, not looking to yourself, not saying, I'm worthy, I'm righteous, I'm not such a desperate or bad sinner. I've not done what that person did, but beating your chest and crying simply out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. If that is your prayer today, this sermon on hell should leave you praising the sovereign grace and love of God for sinners. For we are by nature no better than those who spend eternity in hell. We're no better than they. It is due to God's love in sovereign and unconditional election. God's love in sending a perfect Redeemer who fulfilled the law of God for us and suffered the penalty of guilt which we deserved. And God's love in freely giving us His Holy Spirit who has created us anew, given us faith in Christ alone, and the desire to follow Him and obey Him and every other grace we need to live the Christian life. That we do not spend eternity in hell. That's why. It's God and God alone. A third thing to consider as far as why a study of hell may be profitable to us. Hell also reveals how much our infinitely holy God hates sin. How much he hates sin. For this is true justice. This is what sin actually deserves from a holy and eternal God. Even one sin committed against God which is unforgiven deserves eternal punishment in hell because it is committed against the most holy, infinite, and eternal God. The sermon on hell, dear ones, should also have the effect of causing you to hate sin more and more as it is manifested in your life. Rather than being a lover of sin, and its pleasures. We who know the realities of hell should continuously pray and seek grace to hate our sin and to crucify it by the grace of God. And when we consider the punishment that Jesus Christ suffered 
in enduring that punishment upon the cross, we likewise should grow in our hatred of sin. We should not take pleasure in our sin, but when we know we have sinned against the Lord our God, it should humble us. It should cause us, rather than be proud, it should cause us to be sorrowful and shameful before our God that we have so offended him or offended our neighbor by our sin. To see the effects of of the justice of God meted out in hell or meted out in his son should cause us to flee evil. Want to be more sanctified and more like our Savior. And finally, another thing to consider as to the prophet of studying hell. Hell reveals, dear ones, the urgency of taking the gospel of salvation to those who are perishing. We who are trusting in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, have escaped that place of torment, but there are many around us, many who offend us by their words and by their deeds because of their ungodliness. But dear ones, they are heading for a place of torment from which they will have no escape. If we believe the doctrine of hell is taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot take lightly that there are many around us who are under the wrath of God and in a far worse condition than one who is perishing in a burning building. If you would do something to help someone who was in a burning building, even if you didn't have time to go in and rescue them yourself, but you could call, you could do something you would no doubt do something. A serious contemplation of hell should incite the Christian to have a zeal to promote the gospel to family members, to friends, and even to strangers when God so opens the door. We should be praying for those who are bound for this awful place. Dear ones, in closing today, there are no second chances in hell. None. Your death seals your fate forever. If you die in the Lord, trusting in Christ, alone for your eternal salvation, you enjoy the delights and joys of God in heaven forever. If you die having turned your back on the invitations that Christ has extended to you, you who are within the sound of my voice, invitations which you have heard of the gospel offered to you from me as a minister of Jesus Christ, invitations extended to you from family members, from parents, or from friends, Invitations of life and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ if you turn your back upon it and you die in that state you will never know joy, peace, love or freedom from pain forever 
and ever. Those are the options. There's no in-between option. Those are the options. The other ones, like the prodigal son, come to the Lord Jesus Christ right now confessing your need of Christ and placing your trust in Him alone who is able to save you from hell beneath and usher you into heaven above. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we come to Thee, a holy God, a just God. We grow in our understanding, Lord, of how much Thou dost hate sin as we contemplate hell. We grow in our understanding of thy mercy and grace as we contemplate what thou hast rescued us from. We become so mired in the things of this world, complaining, grieving, striving, unthankful, forgetful of thee, thy mercies, when we forget hell. Because, O Lord, One of the greatest blessings we have is that, Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have escaped hell and gained heaven. Help us, our God, to not be so earthly-minded that we forget these eternal truths. May these truths, O God, motivate us to be and act like the children of God in our speech, in our conduct, in our thoughts, whether we're in public or whether we're in private, whether we're talking on the phone or writing on the internet, Lord God, we pray that Thou would help us to be those children who bring Thee glory and who have a very conscious sense of what we've been delivered from undeserving as we are and what we have gained by thy free mercy and grace through Jesus Christ our Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.